I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Today, uh, here at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's headquarters building, Dr. Don Bosch is joining me. Don is a longtime friend, a longtime trustee of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. His day job, and sometimes it goes into night and weekends, <laughs> is the president of the Center for Environmental Science at the University of Maryland. I really have to say, Don, you are the preeminent estuarine scientist in the world, and we are so fortunate to have you uh, involved with CBF. Don is also a member of the Maryland Climate Change Commission. There's some interesting news that came out uh, a week or so ago from the commission. And he's a contributor, has been a contributor to two of the three United States National Climate Change Assessments. Don was also on the President's Commission on the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So welcome, Don. Great to have you here. It's good to be here. Well, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you. I guess I, you know, we, we want to focus on climate change its impact on the Chesapeake Bay, how we might mitigate it, how it relates to other pollution control and reduction strategies. But, but let's start with the Gulf of Mexico because I know our board asked you right when you came back from basically spending a year on the Gulf working on that commission, how bad was the spill? Well, the spill was bad. Don't, don't uh, know, know two ways about it. Uh, it was, it was, though, in very deep water. The Gulf of Mexico is very, very uh, large volume of water, and only a very small percentage of the oil that was released, only about 6%, actually hit shore. So, uh, yes, it was bad, but the longer-term challenges the Gulf of Mexico has, ranging from the, the, the destruction of, of the Mississippi Delta due to a variety of things we've done in that river basin and in the estuaries and wetlands, uh, the big dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, much like our dead zone in the in the Chesapeake Bay. Same reason, uh, you know, nutrient runoff coming down down the river, um, overfishing of some of the of the uh, those are the issues which are really longer term issues, much bigger, much more serious issues. So the good news is that out of this tragedy of the BP oil spill, just now the the government and BP announced that they have a settlement, which they are actually uh, taking to the judge for approval. That will, in which BP will pay something like $20.8 billion. That was billion with a B. Billion with a B. And then in addition to that, there was another $2.5 billion, which was spent for uh, uh, an agreement for the criminal uh, trial. So collectively, there's going to be about uh, $15, $16 billion dollars uh, for environmental restoration uh, programs of various types. So, so out of this tragedy came an opportunity to address some of these longer-term problems. And so just uh, earlier uh, in October, actually, uh, there was uh, a release of a report which actually the government laid out all of the damages, how many estimated uh, dolphins were killed, sea turtles, these sorts of things. So the readers could go and look, I mean, your listeners could go and actually find that information. But it also, part of that report is transitioning from that to the restoration plan. So coupling damage to uh, the rationale for the long-term environmental restoration. So I'm, I'm very pleased to have Bursa be on the commission, but I'm also 
It's, I, I like to joke it, that Oswald has been my tar baby because not only the commission, but I was involved in the trial, and, and, and I also helped the government agencies in this transition to, to restoration as well. And I should tell our listeners that uh, while Don has spent much of his career here on the Chesapeake Bay, he has a, a deep uh, affinity for the Gulf of Mexico, really your home. Uh, you were born raised in Louisiana, as I recall. That's correct. Yeah. And so the, the, the oil spill in the Gulf had real implications for a system not unlike the Chesapeake. And certainly we transport a lot of oil on the bay, and we've been, I should knock on wood, lucky not to have had any bad spills recently on the Chesapeake. But the, the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus coming down the Mississippi is really one of the drivers of the long-term detrimental impacts on the Gulf of Mexico, as it is on the Chesapeake, and on really all water bodies around the world. Absolutely. In fact, uh, I was just in communication with some colleagues in the Baltic Sea who just published a paper looking at the really the long-term trends. And they, like the Chesapeake, have been investing in trying to improve their water body, reduce the harmful algal brooms, uh, reduce the size of their dead zone. And, and this, this paper came out actually gives a hopeful indication that they're seeing signs of, of a turnaround and, and improvement in that system. So I've taken that paper and I'm challenging my, my Chesapeake scientific colleagues to do the same kind of in-depth analysis. And then coincidentally, um, other colleagues from the Gulf and from the West Coast and other parts of the world uh, are also inspired by this paper talking about kind of putting all this together and so we can learn collectively about how do we improve these coastal systems that have been degraded uh, largely by nutrient uh, over-enrichment. Uh, if you look at the Chesapeake, actually, uh, we have clear signs uh, that we've turned that corner as well. We need to document it better scientifically. Uh, and just like in the Baltic, you see concentrations of the nutrients in the river inflows going down. Gulf of Mexico, on the other hand, the Mississippi River has shown no sign of improvement. And one of the real distinctions is what we have now a mandatory framework to deal with this under the, the so-called TMDL, the pollution diet, the, the blue water, the, the blueprint. Chesapeake clean water blueprint. Blue, and, to use and, the right. CBF to, uh, that's jargon. It, right? That's it. But the point is, is that we have we have a plan. There are allocations, and that there's there's required to do it. The states are required to do it. It's not the case in the Mississippi. And, and in fact, Will, you know as well as I do, that's one of the reasons that the American Farm Bureau Federation is opposed posing the. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay TMDL because they think that will set a precedent for the Mississippi. Yeah, that's that's the ugly irony I keep talking about is that these big national agricultural lobbying industry associations are worried that if we're successful here, that same protocol might go to the Mississippi, which does admittedly drain half of the United States uh, for the benefit of the Gulf, and that's what they're worried about. That's correct. Yeah. Well, we're, we will uh, get to climate change, but just one other um, observation and, and love to hear your thoughts. I don't know about you, Don, but the water in the Chesapeake this summer and certainly this fall has looked uh, more clear. You can see down deeper uh, than I think I've seen in a long time. We were, our, our environmental educators are getting eight feet of visibility in some places on the bay. I saw a dramatic photograph that's on our website uh, off Poplar Island of abundant grasses and clear water. Is there any scientific monitoring that um, would be available to share with our listeners this early as to whether there might be something going on here? 
Well, you know, Will, you sent me that photograph, and I actually began to ask my colleagues about it, and, and there are bits and pieces. But, you know, one of the problems that we need to do very, very rigorous monitoring, but the answers aren't always available right away. Yes. So, so the, the results of this year's water quality assessment really, really aren't com- done and completed yet. So there are folks who are working on, on answering that question. But I, I, like you, made the same observation of, of, of greater water clarity. It has a little bit to do with the climate we've had this year, the, the weather we've had this year, but, but, but uh, for a variety of reasons in terms of the demonstrated reductions in nutrient loads from point sources where we have that actually measured and from the river inputs, uh, there's a good reason to think that we're, we're actually seeing the system kind of flip back into a more normal way. You know, the, we didn't get into this uh, dilemma overnight, and we're not going to get out of it right. very, very quickly either. And, and the science has shown not only what work we've done here in the Chesapeake, but in other similar systems, is that it's slower to recover than you might think. Uh, it, it just, re- you know, once we get it to a degraded state, it's just hard to get it out of it. But once you do, once you go over some sort of a threshold, things start to improve uh, rather dramatically because their feedbacks are working in your favor in that case. So optimistically, this may be an, an, one of the initial signs that we're seeing the system is, is improving that way. Well, that's just that's great news. But, you know, we, we all know that we're nowhere near uh, a job done, but we may be starting to see some progress. And if we think of the Bay as having declined over a century because of a vicious cycle, mm-hmm. uh, too much pollution, loss of filters and natural buffers, overfishing, things like that, maybe if we can start to make progress on each of those, we might have what I call a vicious cycle in reverse, and maybe it can start to accelerate. I think, I think you're right, but I mean, I think you, what you just said is not, not become too cocky about this, the yes. place because the harder things that we need to do are yet to be done. The easy, we've done the easier things. We've made investments. It weren't easy. They cost money, but they were technically feasible to, to improve wastewater treatment. But, you know, the last bit that we need to get from, from agriculture and from urban runoff are very difficult, very challenging problems remaining. So, Donna, you're, you're my scientific advisor. I always check with you. Is, is, is my elevator speech still accurate? It is. The Chesapeake Bay is a system dangerously out of balance, but it's starting to get better. Well, of course, as a professor, I'd might, I might want to see some, you know, some details about that. But I think, I think in, in essence, it's correct. You'll give me, you'll give me a, yeah, B, a, B, a B plus on that one? Yes. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm, that's better than I used to do in high school and college. All right, so let's turn to climate change. And, you know, if we've talked about nutrient enrichment, dead zones in big systems like the Chesapeake, the Gulf of Mexico, the world's oceans, that's that's a big deal. That's a long-term big issue with multiple um, uh, needs, et cetera. But now climate change, even bigger, worldwide. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts in the macro sense, and then give us a sense of how climate change impacts the Chesapeake Bay and relates to the protocol, the efforts to try to improve the water quality of the Chesapeake Bay? Are they interrelated? <clears throat> yeah. Well, first of all, a lot of, a lot of people, and, including many, some, of your, some of the listeners here, uh, kind of have the impression that climate change is something that's going to ex- come in the future. Uh, and they also think it's gonna, not going to affect where they live. They, they think of, well, okay, 
the Arctic and polar bears, uh, you know. But, but guess what? It's here now. It's happening. And, and also uh, affects, can affect where you live and where we live in the Chesapeake. Just this uh, last week, uh, there was a, a, a report, a, a scientific publication, that documented the kinds of changes related to warming of the Gulf of Maine in the northeastern U.S. And it said this place was warming faster than 99.9% of the rest of the world. You know, so it's here. It's in our country. To the Chesapeake, one of my scientists uh, uh, and his student just published a paper earlier, a few months ago, that actually uh, was able to document the warming of the Chesapeake Bay from satellite observations over the years. So rather than having just a few, you know, we, we knew the bay was warming because we have long-term records at our lab in Solomons or at the VIMS lab in Gloucester Point, and we've got, you know, periodic monitoring, you know, once every two weeks. Satellites could kind of give you 24-7 coverage, you know, over a long time. And so now we're able to show, and even and more recently, that's, that warming trend is continuing. So the bay is warming. We see signs of that in terms of the change biology, but that also has lots of re, lots of implications for the what bay we, we can have in the future. So we think about it. We're trying to reduce. Uh, take we talked earlier about the dead zone. We're trying to reduce the size of the dead zone. Guess what? Dead zone water that does not have right. enough oxygen to support right. life. Generally, the bottom waters of the bay and the deeper parts of the bay, in which during the summer, not all year round, during the summer months for the most part the oxygen levels drop to a level too low. They could go to zero, no oxygen, but generally too low to support uh, things like fish and crabs and things of this sort. So, um, so we're trying to reduce that, and, and we know that we have to reduce nutrient pollution inputs. A warming bay, uh, it, it changes the equation a bit because it causes, first of all, greater... Uh, density stratification. So as the bay surface of the bay waters warm, they're they become less dense. So that strengthens the stratification, which which is a necessary ingredient for the oxygen depletion. The metabolism of microbes speeds up, so that organic matter is decomposed in in, in you know mineralized more rapidly, consumes oxygen in the process. So there are a number of reasons to think that that warming of the bay, climate change is going to, might, might well exacerbate the water quality problems, which means that we, from my standpoint, my view is that we need to begin to understand that, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't think that, oh my God, this is, you know, everything we've done is pointless. We need to finish the job. So we have a, we have a goal of 2025 and no one can really predict what conditions will change in that time frame. but we know that we'll always have changing conditions beyond, but, Behind, beyond that time, population growth, agriculture is going to change, lots of things. So we have to always going to have to adapt our, our approach to kind of maintaining the, the improved quality of the Bay going forward. Climate change is just one of those. And as, as you said, I mean, it, it affects us right now. I mean, take a, a, a signature iconic species in the Chesapeake, rockfish, striped bass. We call them rockfish here. Low dissolved oxygen on the bottom warmer water on the top, they're getting squeezed with less and less space, and we know the fish are stressed, we know they're succumbing to a wasting disease called mycobacteriosis. Mm -hmm. None of this is good. Uh, it may, we may be able to debate how bad it is, but there's certainly nothing that's good in mm -hmm. any of this. 
Right, right. So, so if you think about this for the, from the Bay standpoint, um, most people who, who might be thinking about climate change in the Bay are, of course, aware uh, with climate change comes sea level rise. Why? Because as the oceans warm, even, even if the mass of water in the ocean is the same, the volume increases, and so therefore the ocean rises. But most importantly, we have these large masses of ice in the polar ice caps, but also in glaciers, almost all of which is melting <laughs> one way or another. Mm-hmm. And, and in some cases, uh, recent research on the uh, Antarctic, West Antarctica, it's, it's resulting, it, it, the new evidence is that it's melting, it's being lo- losing mass in a very sinister and quick way by, by warmer water kind of undermining the ice from under, rather than ice melting on the surface. The so-called feedback loops. Right. So, so you know, these sort of things can happen, will happen quite dramatically, and we can't, and there's almost nothing we can do to stop them or slow them down once they begin happening. So even if we, if we uh, as the scientific assessments show, we can actually take steps. They're perfectly feasible. It's going to require lots of actions, all hands on deck, to stop global warming this century. I don't mean we can hold it to where it is now because it's going to increase. Warming's going to increase. But if we took action, it's the same action, it's the same plan that the, they're going to be discussing in Paris end of this year for a global agreement to hold the, the amount of temperature increase in the world on average of 2 degrees Celsius for a worldwide increase. If we can do that, we can do that. We can, we can reduce emissions our greenhouse gas emissions and accomplish that objective so we can stabilize. We can't do that for sea level rise because it's a process that once it's begun, the, we're, so we're making decisions in terms of our emissions and so on in my generation and the generation of my daughter, maybe, maybe a little bit into my granddaughters, that basically will set the stage for many generations thereafter, for hundreds of years thereafter, that sea level is going to continue to rise. So we might have by our best estimates, if we're lucky, might have in the Chesapeake Bay maybe three feet of sea level rise this century, by the end of the century. It's a lot because we only had one foot, one foot last, last century. We might, we might if, we, if we don't slow the rate of warming, we might be basically condemning this region for a 10 to 20 feet of sea level rise, you know, 100, 200 years from now. And there's nothing that people living in those centuries can do about it. It's all up to us. When I talk to some climate deniers, I'll sometimes break through by saying, forget about whether you believe it's true or not. Are you for pollution? They say no. I say, well, addressing climate change is really simply about reducing pollution to the air and water land. Is that, is that an oversimplification? Well, I think that, well, I, I, would, I would pose it this the other way. With, with reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, there, 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 they, there come other co-benefits. Improved air quality, uh, improved water quality, a whole variety of other co-benefits. Just, just expand on that just for a second. Yeah, so- air quality and water quality are linked. Tell us well, so j- just for example, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the important inputs of nitrogen into the Chesapeake Bay 
comes from uh, atmospheric sources. It rains down on the, on the landscape and on the bay. When you burn fossil fuels. From burning fuels. fossil fuels. So if we're going to go to, uh, you know, decarbonize our economy, go to, you know, uh, no net uh, contribution of, of burning CO2, we also get no, no uh, reducing NOx, uh, nitrogen Nitro oxide uh, emissions, which are the precursor of, of not only the bay water, they cause not only the de contribute to diminished bay water quality, but also the precursor for ozone creation, which, get, you know, which has resulted in, in, in my state living downwind of a lot of this and in, 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 uh, uh, chronic asthma, things of that sort. Uh, so there are lots of co-benefits that way. But, but, Will, I think, frankly, uh, I, I, I refuse to give uh, deniers a way out <laughs> because I think this, they need to understand the long-term consequences of this. They need to understand the connections. And I don't think it's only when, when people understand that they're, that they're prepared to make the serious commitments in the transformations that are going to be required. So I always try to continue to engage and have a discussion with, uh, with folks who, who aren't convinced. Just in the last... Uh, Such as my brother, by the way. Oh, well, I'm not going to go into that. All right. <laughs> Maybe he's listening. <laughs> you may have convinced him. Um, just in the last week or so, uh, the Maryland Climate Change Commission, of which you're a member, uh, voted uh, a, a rather extraordinary vote here in one state. T tell us what that decision was and what is the potential for Yeah, that, this is actually quite remarkable, Will. Uh, you know, Maryland uh, has... Uh, in 2009, the Maryland General Assembly Gov and Governor O'Malley uh, supported it and, and signed the law that may put into law our commitment and our requirement that we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in the state of Maryland by 25 percent by the year 2020. And so what's happened, we we're doing now the com through the Commission and the Department of the Environment, they're assessing how we're doing. So the good news is is that we're actually, uh, several lots of good news, is that we're actually on track. We have, we're not there yet, but we're on the right trajectory to get us to 25% reduction by the year uh, 20, 2020. The other part of the good news is that that's having a net economic positive benefit in terms of job creation, in terms of savings from energy conservation. So it is, a, it is going to be a big winner as well, economically, if we do it. So the question is, is that where do we go once we hit there? Because that's not a level that we want to level up. That's just the waypoint to get us where we need to go. Because where we need to go, the science is pretty clear, as a world, is that to, to decarbonize this whole, our whole economy, go to zero net, net, net emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, before the end of the century. So that's a big, big challenge. So we got, we got a quarter in this state of Maryland, so where do we go next? And, Good start. Yeah, and so what, what my, my, my role in, this, in the commission's activities is to kind of explain science. It's very complicated science. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tried to address that question globally, just that. It's, it's a whole series of, 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 of dense models and calculations to, to get there, so to help them understand it. And so what we came up with is that is that what the science is telling us is that a developing, I mean, developed country that has already, already contributed a lot of greenhouse gas to the atmosphere and has a high rate of, of emissions per capita, like the United States, has to be on the leading edge, can't be on the trailing edge, because why else would anyone do it? 
So it, it, that, this means that we have to get in this country to about a 70 to 80 percent reduction from early this century by 2050. By 2050. 2050. 70 to 80 percent right. reduction from uh, a baseline. That's by right. By, in the case we use is a <clears throat> 2006 baseline. And so the question is, is that if we're going to go on that trajectory, we can't wait. Just like, you know, the Chesapeake Bay uh, thing where we had 10-year periods, and then we got in year nine and said, oh, my God, what are we going to do? So we, now we're going to have milestones that uh, have, make sure they're on the right trajectory and path. So the next milestone, the next waypoint. Past 2020. Would be, tw say, 2030. Right. And so we presented the evidence on the basis of, of, of demonstration of that. Uh, we've gotten all the parties, business, the uh, secretaries of six agencies in the Republican administration of Governor Hogan, uh, environmentalists, all to basically agree that the goal should be a 40 percent reduction from that, from that base point by, 20, by 2030. That's quite remarkable, considering that a lot of places where you have these political differences in this country are not doing anything like this. And so it's, it's, it's to me, all about frankly, my patriotism of Maryland, the Maryland way, in which we can make progress on these environmental objectives, working through the political differences and find you know, positive, progressive, leading, leading directions. So a large commission, cross-section of society, business, environmental, right. academic interests. Labor. Labor, bipartisan. Local governments. Local governments, mm -hmm. bipartisan, unanimous right. vote in support right. of meeting that 2030. Isn't that year. remarkable? <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. Right. And nobody, uh, there were no fisticuffs? Yeah, no, no, no. Well, there, <laughs> there, were some, there were some debates. But interestingly, the debates weren't over, you know, zero versus, versus you know, 100. <laughs> they were between debates over whether it should be 35 or 45. You know, so that was that was the largely the, the the debates that were that were had. So I think this is now it's not not all done yet because uh, our general assembly in Maryland has to, by the 2009 law this next year, decide to extend to continue toward the 2020. But I think what is likely to happen uh, is that the general assembly will include in that in that continuation of the present law the extension to 20 to 2030. So whether we're talking about reducing the traditional pollutants of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment coming into our environment here in Maryland, Virginia, Chesapeake Bay, Pennsylvania, or whether starting to address the long-term challenges of, a, of climate change, we can say we've got a long way to go on each, but we are at least starting to make some progress. I think, yes, definitely. And, and I think it's also, we need to be smart about the trying to do both, address both of these challenges at the same time, the Chesapeake Bay restoration and climate change. So let me give you a couple of examples. One is, as you know, um, Will, um, we, we got on this push for reasons related to the, uh, you know, the energy supply, uh, and, and national security issues of some years ago into, into subsidizing, promoting ethanol the use of ethanol and our gasoline and that sort of thing. And we had this big, we, have, we still have these big subsidy programs that, that provide incentives for farmers to grow corn, which is the easiest thing in this country to grow to make, to make ethanol. We have a worldwide glut of oil. Right. And we're paying farmers exactly. to grow corn 
to substitute for water. And, and what, what has happened as a result of that? It, the, the landscape is bleeding more nitrogen <laughs> into, the, into the Chesapeake Bay. So that's one case where you, you would take a choice and say, well, I'm going to get us off of oil and go to renewable energy, but actually create a problem for the Bay. So that's one of the con conflicts you want to avoid. Another, and this is more looking toward the future, if we are committed as a society in our state and our country and as world to reduce our emissions that drastically, why would we be building um, remote subdivisions all over the surface of our earth that requires personal vehicles to travel to? Shouldn't we be having, just like we look at Im environmental impacts in a variety of other ways, stormwater or uh, you know, uh, conservation issues for a housing development, why, why, sh why shouldn't there be a carbon impact statement in which we basically say, if you're going to develop an area, you've got to even have offsets or basically reduce, minimize your, your contribution to our greenhouse gas emissions. That then addresses a, a really important long-term problem in the Bay, and that is our propensity to continue to sprawl and to grow over the landscape. So it's a game changer, potentially a game changer, if we think of it that way. The two issues, our two priorities, the Bay and climate change, as, as, as joined at the hip. And, and the argument that human health is absolutely uh, part and parcel of all these arguments is unassailable. Over and over again, we see it. Well, absolutely. And, and, and you know, another good case in point, we, we were just talking earlier about, about air quality and ozone. It's a <laughs> You know, it's, it, it's, it's caused by our excessive, you know, liberation of nitrogen into the, into the, into the world, and, and it has severe human health consequences. And if is in a warming world, absent dealing with that source of the pollution, the asthma gets worse because, because there's a greater rate of ozone creation the warmer the, warmer the temperatures are. So we're just basically, by warming the earth, we're cooking more of that that, that knocks the emission to create more ozone. So, so again, all these things are, it's like an ecosystem, man, that they're all related. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Dr. Don Bosch, it is always such a pleasure. I always learn something. You always uh, push me to, uh, to, to expand my horizons and thoughts. I know our listeners have enjoyed it. And the only thing I wish is that we had more time. And so I hope you will come back at some point in the future and continue the discussion. I'd be happy to do that. Well, meantime, you've been at this a long time and saving the bay. Don't <laughs> give up the ship. Keep moving forward. <laughs> I think we all hope we're going to see some dramatic improvements in our own lifetime. So thank you, everybody, for listening in. Uh, tune in again in two weeks. I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. And don't uh, ever uh, not... Uh, uh, visit our website at cbf.org to learn more about all that this organization is involved with and so much more. So thank you very much, Don. Great to have you. Great.